Christmas. We are in the weeks leading up to the Advent season. And many of us have different traditions regarding anticipating Advent. Um, many people put up lights. Um, there's the Christmas tree. Um, some of us have Advent calendars. I don't know if you've seen those, but uh, every day leading up to Christmas for the month of Advent, you open a little flap and inside is revealed a scripture. If mom and dad really love you, inside is revealed a chocolate. So it's 30 days of cavities in preparation for the nativity. When I came here many years ago and my son was small, I learned of a tradition, I don't know if they still do it, but I discovered in Zimbabwe one of the Advent traditions was to go to the Arundel village. And a very tan Father Christmas would arrive on a fire truck, shattering all the renditions in my head of a corpulent, elderly, Anglo-Saxon Santa flying in with some reindeer on a sleigh. It was quite a different tradition. Uh, it would seem there are many ways of anticipating Advent. Now, Advent is from the Latin word for coming, and theologically, Advent pertains to Jesus' first or his second coming. Now, our culture puts a lot of emphasis on the first coming of Christ. The entire month of December in much of the world seems to be geared up in anticipation of Christmas. There are Christmas parties at work and uh, Christmas functions at school and Christmas plays and uh, all of these things. And you can't go to a mall in much of the world and not see that Christmas is coming, right? So our culture puts a lot of emphasis on the first advent. Interestingly, Scripture puts a lot of emphasis on the second advent of Jesus Christ. Um, I'll give you a few guys that have put some thought into this. Dr. David Jeremiah reminds us that passages pertaining to the second coming of Christ outnumber references to the first coming of Christ by a factor of roughly eight to one. That's a big shift in emphasis. Many of you are familiar with the evangelist, Billy Graham. And he noted, quote, the teachings of the second coming of Jesus Christ are dealt with in some 1,800 passages in the Bible, end quote. Um, Dr. John Walvoret of Dallas Seminary reports that one out of roughly every 25 verses in the New Testament refers either to the rapture of the church or the return of Christ's reign over the world. In Revelation 22, the Lord Jesus tells us, Behold, I am coming soon. But 2,000 years have passed, and some scoff at Jesus' promised return, his second advent. And Scripture said it would be so. In 2 Peter 3, and verse 3, the Bible says, First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming? That Jesus promised. Now, despite the scoffers, our Savior urges us to be eagerly anticipating the second advent. And we see this in places like Matthew 24 and verse 42, where the Bible says, 
Jesus tells us, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Now, the wisest man who ever lived, who wasn't a God man, the previous author was a God man, the wisest man who ever lived is Solomon. And Solomon told us this, there is nothing new under the sun. And in fact, the verse before that says, what has been will be again. And so there's a pattern. What we've seen will probably be seen again. And Solomon says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. So this morning, as we commemorate uh, Christmas, by examining the nativity narratives, let's do so with an eye to those who were supposed to be ready at the first advent, who either missed the opportunity entirely or, or they enjoyed it tremendously. Let's look at those responses to the first advent as a probable or at least possible pattern for us to learn from because we are supposed to be eagerly anticipating the second advent of Jesus Christ. So if you would turn with me in the word of the Lord, and let's turn to the Lord of that word in prayer. We're interrupting our series in Joshua. That will continue when I come next time. But because we had our Christmas play, I was asked to speak on this subject today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of the church to speak to your people today, that you would take your Holy Spirit and your Holy Scriptures, and you would speak to every single person present in some way, that there would be some principle or passage that pops out at us that we can uh, studiously mull over this week, this month, this year. We pray that this wouldn't just be another Christmas message where we kind of glaze over, but that you would arrest us by your Holy Spirit in your Holy Word to make us a holy people. We pray this in your holy name. Amen and amen. So let's start today as we look at these reactions or responses to the first advent in the nativity narratives of scripture, let's start with the, the positive examples, right? So who were the kinds of people who did not miss uh, the blessings of enthusiastically anticipating, indeed worshipfully reacting to the first advent of Jesus Christ. Now, almost all of these folks are found in the Gospel of Luke's narrative of the Nativity. So if you would turn with me in the Word of God to Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. And that's going to bring us to our first point today. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. And here is the first point. It is this. In anticipating the second advent, in anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate the faithfulness, but not the doubtfulness of servants like Zechariah. In anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate the faithfulness, but not the doubtfulness of servants like 
Zechariah. Luke 1.5 says, In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were upright in the sight of God. Not men. God thought they were upright people. They observed all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, not faultlessly, because we're all sinners, but blamelessly. There was a real commitment to honoring the word of God. So Zechariah and his wife were faithful. They were faithful in following God's word. Now, verse 7, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. That's a nice speak for their old, okay? Like super old, like not going to have kids old. So, Bible euphemism, okay? Verse 8, so when Zechariah's division, he's a priest, is on duty at the temple is what's being referred to. He was serving as a priest before God. Now, that only happened a few times in your lifetime because they had all these divisions and it wasn't something that happened all the time. But when providentially Zechariah's group was on duty and he was serving as a priest, he was chosen by lot. So even out of his subgroup, God provided an opportunity for him, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and do something special to burn incense to God. Verse 10, and when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And so, so Zechariah was faithful in obeying the word along with his wife, but he's also faithful in serving the Lord in the temple. But then God interrupted that faithful man in his faithful service with a fateful witness. And it's going to be a providential precursor to the first advent of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, and then, while he's in the temple, honoring the Lord, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now he's burning incense, so it's right next to him. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. He's the only one that's supposed to be in there, but now there's this supernatural being next to him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now remember, all the other people are outside praying. Probably praying for what? The Messiah. Probably. So they're out praying, and he's been praying, and the prayer on his heart was either for the Messiah or maybe it was a child. We don't know. But either way, the angel's answer is going to be correct for that prayer. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John, and he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. This is all part of the vow of a Nazarite. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Now, before the church age, the Holy Spirit only came on certain saints for service, uh, rarely. And this child from birth is going to have the Spirit upon him. Verse 16, many of the people of Israel he will be bring back to the Lord their God. He will have a ministry of repentance. Verse 17, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah, which was promised in other prophecies, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for Lord. This is a necessary precursor to the birth of Christ. And so 
What I want you to notice, though, is faithful Zechariah, faithful in the word and faithful in doing the Lord's work, is not <laughs> faith-filled Zechariah. He's faithful. He's not faith-filled. He doubted the surety of God's promise to him because the logistics seemed rather dubious. He's super old, and his wife is super old, and they could never have children. And so he kind of did the math and said, great promise, no chance. That's what he thought in his heart. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Notice the doubt he has in the promise, because that's going to be different than Mary's reaction, who also doubts the mechanics, but not the promise. You need to see the difference. How can I be sure of this? Meaning I, I struggle to believe the promise of God because I don't see how it's going to work. I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Isn't it nice to Zechariah that tactfully he's old, but his wife is just well along? Like, you know, he's a good guy. He should get some husband points there. He often gets missed at Christmas. Instead of being overjoyed at God's promises, he questioned how God could possibly bring to pass this promise, given the mechanics. I'm old, and my wife is well advanced in years. But it did come to pass. And that's the thing with the promises of God. It's impossible for God to lie. He always keeps his word. And so it did come to pass. However, Zechariah's decision to doubt God's word is going to cost him his ability to use words until God's word was fulfilled. Verse 19, the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens, this day of this birth that you didn't believe could happen, because you did not believe my words. The promise of God, because you did not believe that, which will come true at the proper time. Now, I'm very grateful that the Bible is careful to remind us at the first advent, that the first person who's first addressed, that even among the faithful, a priest who diligently followed Scripture and was faithfully ministering Scripture, think about this, even among the faithful, there is room for those of us who sometimes find that our faith falters. The Bible wants you to know that. He's not here to save the perfect. He saves the lost. There was a man that came to Jesus, and he brought his afflicted, tormented child to Jesus because he had nowhere else to go. And he said, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. It seems as though the Bible wants us to understand that we can at times, even as we have faith in Christ, struggle a bit with faith in the moment given the situation. And that brings us to our second positive example. Our second positive example is this. In anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate the humble and faith-filled servants like Mary. In anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate the humble and faith-filled servants like Mary. You see, another faithful follower was about to get another faithful visitation in preparation for the greatest news the world has ever known, the gospel. 
stemming from the greatest gift that's ever been given, the gift of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. So please look at verse 26, and you'll see this. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pled to be married, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Do you know what that name means? Savior. And he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's the promised Messiah uh, in the uh, Davidic covenant right there in, in Samuel. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will not end. This is a promise of Messiah. There's no other way to interpret this. And Mary has a question, verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Now, there's a huge difference between Zacharias asking, where he just said this cannot be, and Mary's asking, how can this be? And you need to understand. So one is, is, a, is a faithful man. The other is a faith-filled woman. There's a difference. Mary, too, is quite confused at the logistics of this promise. Because, but unlike Zachariah, she doesn't dismiss the possibility entirely. Notice the angel doesn't rebuke her. The angel has to rebuke Zachariah because he rejects in a moment of faltering faith. Instead, the angel does not rebuke her. He explains to her her situation and how God can do what is impossible. Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born and he will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her own old age and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. Meaning here's some confirmation. Here's something you could find out. And then he says what? Verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God. And God made everything from nothing just by saying, let it be. And it showed up. He said, let there be light before he ever made a sun, moon, and stars several days later. So the fact that he says, if I can create life by dust and breathing life into it and making woman from a rib, he can make the Savior through Mary being overcome by the Holy Spirit. Nothing is impossible with God. And I want you to notice Mary's faith-filled, humble reaction to God's amazing and maybe unsettling revelation. Verse 38, how does she respond? Look at it for just a second, see if you see it. I am the Lord's servant. Zechariah rejects this. I don't get the logistics. I can't believe the promise Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I, this is super impossible. Zechariah had to believe that in old age there would be reproduction. She has to believe with no union there's reproduction. Who has the higher faith question? Mary. See, it's not what you're asked to believe God for. It's how you respond to what you are asked by God to believe.
I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. As we consider the second coming of Christ, let us consider being found faithful like Zechariah, who was dutifully doing his ministry duties when God interrupted his day. But let us also be like the humble and faith-filled Mary, living out what Philippians 3.20 says. Philippians 3.20 tells us all, that if you're in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior. Every single Christian should identify first as belonging to heaven. And secondly, we should be eagerly awaiting the Savior. But we get so trapped in this world, we forget about heaven. And we can easily forget about the coming of Christ. We're supposed to be eagerly awaiting. This brings us to our third point, and it's also taken from Luke 2. The third point is this. In anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate the diligent who are responsive to God's revelation, like the shepherds. Number three, in anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate the diligent who are responsive to God's revelation, like the shepherds. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, and what were they doing? They were keeping watch of their flocks at night. You see, like Zechariah, we also have these, uh, here we have the shepherds, and they are faithful people. But these shepherds are faithful, and their faithfulness is stretched out into the wee hours of the morning, and in spite of the cold darkness of the night. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. <laughs> but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David has been born to you a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's not normally where you find babies. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. These diligent shepherds were doing difficult duty on the night shift, no less. And yet they did not rubbish the announcement of Jesus's arrival. They were receptive to God's revelation to them. Verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go back to bed. No. We got sheep here. Sheep is what we're called to do. No. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. My friends, let us equally, eagerly, expectantly anticipate the return of Jesus Christ at the second advent. Verse 16, and so the shepherds hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger, just like God promises. Whatever God promises, God brings to pass. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Exactly. God makes a promise, you can bank on that promise. The prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament is quite correct. He says the revelation 
awaits an appointed time. It speaks of an end, and it will not prove false. Though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come. The word of God will always come to pass, but it may be a while before we see it come to completion. Now, those who wait expectantly will not be disappointed at Christ's return. And this brings us to our fourth point today. In anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate the righteous and gracious, like Joseph. In anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate the righteous and gracious, like Joseph. So at this point, I'd like to have us leave Luke and move to Matthew. There's two basic sections of nativity passages in the Gospels. And we're moving now out of Luke, and we'll spend the rest of our time in Matthew. Please turn to Matthew 1 and verse 18. Matthew 1 and verse 18. Matthew 1, 18, the Bible says, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to... Joseph. But before they had come together, before they had had physical intimacy and union, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't know that part yet. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. He's a righteous man, and he's a gracious man. You see, Joseph knew one thing. He knew he had not known his wife biblically and intimately. He also now knew a child was forthcoming. And yet righteous Joseph was gracious Joseph. Instead of making a scene, for he was graciously concerned for Mary's situation, despite his own frustration and humiliation at what he currently understood to be the situation, righteous, gracious Joseph had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, he made up his mind, this is what I'm going to do. The angel of the Lord appeared in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. What does the name Jesus mean? Savior. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. So why is this happening to me? <laughs> this is un inconvenient and untoward, and, and, I, and it's going to set tongues wagging, and it's because God had made a promise, an impossible promise. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and I will give birth to a son and they and, and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this savior is going to be God incarnate. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union, no intimacy with her until she gave birth to a son, and when he was born, he named the child, as the angel said, Jesus. You need to understand how this is going to go down in a small town. 
My friends, this will open Joseph up to the scorn of those who assume what was not true about him. And the ridicule of those who assumed what was not true about his bride. But Joseph held unswervingly to the promises of God. He embraced the Son of God wholeheartedly. And those of us waiting for the second advent can learn a lot from righteous, gracious Joseph. Because many people today think Christians are fools for anticipating a return of Christ to save us. It's ridiculous. You people live in fairy tale land. People insult our intelligence because they believe this promise to be ridiculous. And tongues may wag over our allegiance to Jesus, and increasingly in this world, fingers may wag because our reality affects our morality. And increasingly, our morality and their morality are different, and they don't like the difference of Jesus. So I want you to take a page from righteous, gracious Joseph in this and hold unswervingly to God's promises in God's word as you wait expectantly for the return of God's son. That brings us to our final positive example. Sadly, there are some negatives, but this is our final positive example. Number five is this today. In anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate those who are far off, who earnestly desire to come close, like the Magi. In anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate those far off who desire to come close, like the Magi. So Matthew 2 and verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, which was probably a pretty good time lag, it wasn't immediate, during the time of King Herod, uh, who's not really a king, that's his title, not his uh, birthright, Magi from where? From the east came to Jerusalem. So somewhere far east of Jerusalem, we'll talk about that. These people called Magi, we'll talk about that. They came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Now, Herodotus, the ancient historian, tells us a bit about the Magi. The Magi are a priestly subcast of a group of people called the Medes. And the Medes live in Mesopotamia. So here's Israel, and then you go up this way, and you get over to Mesopotamia, right? Mesopotamia is literally the land between two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Could be the other way around. But there's those two rivers, right? The Tigris and the Euphrates. All right. So this is where they're from. And so in a sense, the Magi are kind of like the Levites are to the Israelites. The Magi are the priestly advisor class to the Mede people that live over there. The Magi were different from the Levites who studied the word of God. The Magi studied astrology and astronomy. They looked to the stars to reveal signs. That was kind of how they did it. And they were revered advisors for multiple empires. There was a succession of Mesopotamian empires, and the Magi are right there, history tells us, in all of those uh, court, uh, royal courts. 
you have all of the different empires that emanate from the Fertile Crescent, from Mesopotamia, you're going to find Magi advising for a long time. Now, if you're going, where is this? This is the modern bit of land we would call modern Iraq and Iran. Um, but the Bible would call those other things. So the, the monotheistic magi, they were unique in that they were monotheists and not many people were. Everybody the Israelites seemed to come in contact with believed in many gods, the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Canaanites. But interestingly enough, the magi were monotheistic and they advised the kings. In fact, they would coronate kings in the Medo-Persian Empire. They first did it for the Babylonians, then they did it for the Medo-Persians when they took over for the Babylonians. And at the time of Jesus Christ, there's this group of people in Mesopotamia called the Parthenians. It's my experience that most Christians know next to nothing about the Parthenians. You have heard of the Babylonians, correct? And you've heard they were pipped by the Medo-Persians because you've read your Old Testament. But because the word Parthenian doesn't appear in the New Testament, you have to read history, and we're not so good at that. <laughs> so you have the Parthenians. This is where the Magi are coming from. Now, you've got to remember their history. If they advised the Babylonians... Do you remember where Israel was taken into captivity, the, 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 the two faithful tribes, uh, uh, Judah? Uh, when Judah was taken away, where were they taken? Babylon. To Babylon. One of the men that was taken to Babylon was incredibly used of God, smart, young, bright, followed God. His name was Daniel. Daniel makes some prophecies that will concern the nations. Daniel is one of the king's trusted advisors. He gets in conflict with other jealous advisors who most likely were segments of the Magi. And so the Magi became deeply acquainted with Daniel. And Daniel had made a prophecy about the world and it involved a future king of the Jews. Now, do you understand why Magi were watching the stars? Yeah, because they had a tip-off from God. It would seem that is why the Magi were searching the stars for signs of a promised king who would interrupt world affairs. What I want you to notice is that these are non-Jews. These are Medo-Persian, Babylonian, Parthenian. They are people from way away, ethnically. And yet, these non-Jews, these pagans, all the way over in Mesopotamia, they're going to take a multi-month overland journey because the stars said something special was happening in Israel. And these kingmakers, because they would coronate the kings when there would be a change of king in any of those three uh, empires, they would come and they were the ones that coronated you. These Parthenian magi, the kingmakers arrive. And there's in, in secular history, you see that I think it was a one, one magi arrived somewhere in the Middle East. I think it was a thousand camels he brought with him and his cavalcade and soldiers. So multiple magi would have been a spectacle. These kingmaker advisors with background in Jewish prophecy, they came to see in the stars that something was happening. Verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So in anticipating the second advent, we ought to emulate those who are far off, who earnestly desire to come close, like the Magi. Religiously, they were far off. They were not believers in the God of the Bible. By tradition, by culture, by heredity. 
but they chose to come close. And geographically, they were far off. They made this multi-month, arduous overland journey in an era before you had any of the comforts of planes, trains, and automobiles. It's quite a haul. Yet we can learn a lot from these wise men because they did not let being far off ethnically, religiously, socially, geographically keep them from coming close to honor Christ. There's a lot can be learned from that. Maybe you feel like you're far off from Christ. That, you know, that's a church people thing. Those aren't my people. Maybe, maybe your family is Hindu. Maybe your family is Muslim. Maybe your family is ardently atheistic. Mine was. And stridently secular. We don't believe in myths and fairy tales around here. Money is our God. That's how I grew up. Maybe you've been wrongly told that Christianity is the white man's religion. Which is really funny because Jesus Christ is a Palestinian Jew, right? So let's just, if over here is the whitest Scandinavian, right? Blue eyes, blonde hair, fair skin, sunburns under incandescent light bulbs. And over here, that's somebody with almost no melanin. That's what makes our skin darker white. And over here, on the other side of the continuum, it is the darkest, highest melanin, equatorial African. Okay. And you were going to say, you know, on the melanin scale between Scandinavia and the equator, you know what's kind of dead smack in the middle? A Palestinian Jew. Jesus Christ is not the white man's God. He's God. And he came not on this side, not on that side. You may have heard about it from this side or that side. It's funny because these people came here to tell these people and said, oh, it's the white man's God. And now you go to England and those people forgot about Jesus and it's Africans going and sharing the gospel. And they're saying that may be fine for Africa. My friends, he is God. And he made the point to come in the center of the melanin spectrum. And Satan's lying to you if he says you're too far because you're Muslim you're Mormon, you're Hindu, you're white, you're black, you're yellow, whatever. Maybe you've come to believe that Jesus is only for holy people, only for perfect people, only for sober people, only for straight people. No, my friends, Jesus is for all people. Because Jesus says his purpose was to seek and save the, the lost. That means anyone who needs forgiveness of sin, and to save you, anyone and everyone. So the Bible teaches that Jesus was a friend to sinners. And that means that no one is too far off to come close to Christ if we will let ourselves do that. The Bible seems to teach that the foot of the cross is the most level ground on all the earth. Everyone is equal at the cross. Everyone who repents of their sin and believes in God's Son, shall be saved. Everyone. There are no exceptions, and there are no rejections. Now, the only question is, have you personally repented and believed? Now, sadly, not every response to the first advent of Jesus Christ was wise or worshipful. Not everyone eagerly anticipated the first advent 
And the responses are most telling warnings to us today of what could happen to our hearts at the return of Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks of three groups, just in Matthew 2, who missed the significance of the first advent of Jesus. If you look again at uh, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? What's Herod's job title? On his job description's business card, he's LinkedIn, King of the Jews. Now, the problem is he's not Jewish, he's not a king. But other than that, he's got a great business card, right? <laughs> and so these people who are kingmakers from a foreign power come over, probably with a cavalry and gifts and all this stuff and a big retinue, and they say, we've seen the stars, this is what we do for a living, we're world-renowned, three empires have used us. We've heard your own Jewish prophet Daniel long ago tell us there was coming a king, and now there's a star, we watch the stars, we've come to meet the king. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Herod had his own agenda, and Jesus is going to upend that agenda. Herod was called king of the Jews, but he was actually, by heredity, an Idumean. That is a descendant of the Edomites who have been uh, oppositional enemies of Israel. Herod was a puppet who had been placed on the throne only by the leave of Rome. Herod, right now, was sitting in Jerusalem, and he was sitting pretty. He ruled a great city, and the presence of Jesus is going to utterly disrupt his happy little life. Many people are like Herod today regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. They reject the reality of Jesus Christ coming back in righteousness because it's going to represent a great disturbance of their current existence. If one is coming in righteousness and we are dealing in wickedness, it's better just to deny his existence, isn't it? Now, a pagan usurper an Edomian false king, you can kind of understand, isn't super excited about the return of Jesus. But what about the majority of God's holy city? Surely, surely, surely the inhabitants of Jerusalem, this is God's city, this is Zion, they're going to be excited at the presence of this long-promised son. They're going to be overjoyed at the birth of God's special boy, right? Wrong. That's not what happened. That's what we thought would happen. It's not what actually happened. Verse 1 again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east. We've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem. This is where God's people live. God's people were not excited at the coming of God's son. Boy, there's probably some warnings for us here as we've waited 2,000 years for the return of Jesus Christ as a church, hey? God's people were not excited about the appearing of God's Son. Now, why is this? Well, you need to remember Israel's recent history. Um, it's geopolitical and economic uncertainty because of the precarious geography of the Holy Land. If you look at a map, you have, you have Israel and modern Jordan, and above it is Syria. And those areas were a disputed territory. They were a buffer zone between the Eastern power and the Western power. Who's the Western power coming out of Europe? Rome and his mighty legions. And they would come across to the Middle East to get to Africa, to get to Asia. Now, who's the superpower over in Mesopotamia? 
well, it's Babylon, then it's the Medo-Persians, and now it's the Parthenians. And they would send their army to the west, and they would come in conflict with the Romans coming from the east, and they would all fight where? In where is modern Israel, modern Jordan, and modern Syria. In fact, just before the time of Christ, the Romans had really lost some terrible battles. Uh, they lost a couple legions. They lost a major general. They lost one of their important battle standards, their, their Roman eagle, which is a thing they'd raised, which you never lost in battle. You would die to defend that. Uh, they had had significant heavy losses. But the tide had turned, and the Romans were able to push back the Persians, which were now the Parthenians, not because the Parthenians didn't have a strong army, but because the Parthenians had an old, unwelcomed ruler who no one liked in Parthenia, and there was internal machinations about civil war. So his army couldn't go and defeat the Romans again. He had to stay if he was going to stay in power to suppress anyone that wanted to rise up against him. And so the East was out of the fight. And in AD 37, Rome set up a man. His name was Herod. And Herod king of the Jews, though not Jewish and not a king, was ruling as governor in Israel this buffer. Now, you need to understand, God's people in God's city at the appearing of God's son were so preoccupied with the geopolitical and economic implications of a Parthenian delegation of kingmakers in their Roman-occupied situation that they paid no attention to the birth of Jesus Christ, to the first advent. And my friends, I think there is a powerful parallel. The Bible tells us that the Old Testament is a warning and an example, and I think in this gospel it would be so too, it is true. Many in the church today, when I talk to Christians, are keenly aware of movements in the markets and the impact on their pockets. And yet they are largely ignorant of the movement of God and the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And many saints are closely following all kinds of political machinations throughout the world. Uh, people are praying for this politician or this political party to either attain or maintain ascendancy. And we're not so busy praying for Christ's kingdom to come and his will to be done, which is what he actually tells the church to do. Now, the Idiomean usurper, Herod, and even the urban commoner living in Jerusalem, you kind of go, well, that's one thing. But I want you to notice that the return of Christ, the clergy were utterly unmoved at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 3. Then King Herod heard this, and he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, this is the clergy, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people. You see, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, instead of being excited at the long-awaited fulfillment of biblical prophecy at the first advent, shockingly, these ministers made zero effort to investigate the claims of the birth of Christ. Zero effort. Now, the clergy could very easily quote the Bible and all the relevant scriptures. When Herod said, bring the people that know the answer, he's an idiomian. Where is the Christ to be born? Did the, did the chief priests have any difficulty saying where he's going to be born? They knew immediately. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, just like the prophet said. How many of them went to see? Nobody. Nobody from the clergy. Nobody went to see. It seems to be there's a warning here that knowing the Bible 
even quoting the Bible is not necessarily the same thing as loving the God of the Bible and living in expected hope of the return of the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. You see, it's all too easy to be churched instead of saved, and we mustn't let familiarity with Scripture lead us to contempt to the Christ of that Scripture. Please don't be like the ancient inhabitants of Jerusalem who are more concerned with their world coming apart than the plan of God coming together. Because that's the world we live in, right? The world is kind of coming apart, and we're very aware of that. But at the same time, the plan of God is, is coming together. Every day that we wait for Jesus, we are closer to the return of, of Jesus. That's just mad. The last thing I want to talk to you here, just very briefly, is that uh, you need to know that Jesus, they said, where's the king of the Jews? Jesus is not just important to the ancient Jews. He's important for me and you too. The first advent was for all men. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the second advent is also going to affect all men. The question is, how is it going to affect you? Now, if you want it to affect you in a positive way, I want to encourage you today. Age is no barrier to coming to Jesus Christ. You can't be too young to trust in Jesus Christ. You say, I'm just a kid. Five, three, 15, 12. In the Bible narratives, the youngest person to respond to meeting Jesus is who? The youngest person to respond to meeting Jesus is when John the Baptist, in the womb of Elizabeth, leaps. So as long as you are at least in the womb, <laughs> it appears that age is not a barrier. But it's not just the preborn. There's a teen. How does she respond? Her name is Mary. She's a young girl. She's a virgin. And in her culture, she would be a young teen. Then there's a young person, a young adult, either a late teen or an early 20. That would be Joseph. He would be slightly older than Mary. And he responds. And then there are not just the young people, very young, pre-born. There's the not so very young, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And if you read on in the story, the really, really, really old prophetess Anna. So it seems to be age, it's not a barrier. You're not too old to come to Jesus. You're not too young to come to Jesus. The question is, have you come to Jesus? Now, the gender is not a barrier. Uh, men embrace Jesus. Men like Zechariah and Joseph and Simeon. And women embrace Jesus like, like Elizabeth and Mary and Anna. And socioeconomics are not a barrier to Jesus. The poor came to Jesus in our story. Joseph and Mary, in Luke 2.24, at Jesus' dedication, they present a pigeon. And that is the offering of the poor. Otherwise, you brought a lamb. This is before gold, frankincense, and myrrh has landed. The Magi haven't come. And they're poor. Can the poor come to Christ? Absolutely. In fact, the poor tend to come to Christ more than anyone else because there's not much hope in the world for them. So they look for the hope of the world. Thank you. Well, if you're a little higher than the poor, there's the working class. Can the working class come to Jesus? Well, there was a group of people working the graveyard shift. They smelled like livestock. They had dirt under their fingernails, and they lived among the muck and mud, and their calling was shepherding. 
They were the working class. Now there's more to the shepherds than just that, but there's at least that. You with me? So the poor and the working class can come to Jesus. And I found throughout the world, many of the poor will come to Jesus. Some of the working class will come to Jesus, but it's the upper class that's the hardest to reach for Jesus. And there was a man named Zechariah, and his family was a direct descendant, at least his wife of Aaron. And he was one of the very few in that society, well-educated, well-born, well-pedigreed, and standing in the most amazing place you could be. He was a toff. They just were toffs by religion as opposed to by regents, right? And he embraced Jesus, and so did his wife. Here's the only question. Have you embraced Jesus personally? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in God's one and only son? With every head bowed and every eye closed, we're going to end this Christmas message where we thought about two Advents. And I want to give you a chance. If maybe you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, if, if you know about Jesus somewhat, but you have not made Jesus your Lord and Savior, the Bible would say today is the day of salvation. That's literally what it says. Today is the day of salvation. Because the devil wants you to think that some future time is a better time. But we don't know what the future holds. And so today, if the Holy Spirit is telling you, you need to repent of your sin and you need to receive Jesus Christ. I want you to know that the Bible teaches that you will not be turned away. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. All we can earn is judgment. But the grace of God is found in Jesus Christ. And so if you in faith will invite Jesus to cleanse your sin, he will not only cleanse you and forgive you, but he will remake you. The Bible promises that the Holy Spirit of the living God, one third of the Trinity, will come and reside inside of you. It is a deposit, a guarantee that he will come for you. Just as we buy a car and we put down a deposit of $1,000 on a $10,000 car, we're not going to walk away from the payments on the car because we have so much invested. God invests one third of the Trinity in us. He will come back to redeem us and recall us. That's what the promise is. And yet that spirit isn't just a promise. He's the Holy Spirit. And he begins to do his holy work. And he begins to rearrange the furniture in our life where there's disorder and where there is sin and where there are habits that we seem to be unable to be able to escape from. And one of the wonderful things about Jesus is he not only cleanses us and saves us and forgives us and adopts us and will never leave us and never forsake us, but he will begin to rearrange the furniture in our life. And he will begin to make us into more and more like the image of Christ. He'll change our speech. He'll change our thoughts. He'll change our desires. He'll change all of these things about us in a way that makes us more glorifying to him and more beautiful to our neighbor. And so I pray if you'd like to do that today, it's as simple as this. What you must do is you can just pray right here, admitting that you're a sinner and asking Christ to be your savior. Your prayer can be expressed like this. Father, forgive me for I am a sinner and I need a savior. And your word tells me there's no other name under heaven by which I may be saved than Jesus Christ. And so I put my faith in Jesus. And I ask that you put the righteousness of Jesus in my account, that you blot out my sin as far as the east is from the west, and there's no record in your books, and that my name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
and that you would begin to rewrite my story for your glory and my good, that I might be a perfume in the room and not a stench in the trench. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, thanks, everyone. That was well done. Um, please, will you join us for some tea and stuff outside? And uh, on behalf of Kingsmead and the Sunday School and everyone here, I uh, do wish you a Merry Christmas. Uh, we will be having a service on Christmas Day. If any of you feel like uh, popping back in for a visit, we will be here. Thank you very much. <laughs>